Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. The idea of the power law is deeply embedded within venture capital investing. Graham Frickard has written a new white paper on the topic. In it, he uses data to show how it works and why it has some profound implications for how we should invest and diversify our portfolios. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, either directly or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Graham Schwickard, who is CEO at Syndicate Room. Welcome to the podcast, Graham. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely our pleasure. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you please tell us how you became involved in EIS fund management? Yeah, I'm not quite sure <laughs> myself sometimes how I ended up in it. I originally actually studied an undergraduate in genetics in South Africa, um, and I went into doing a PhD in that, dropped out after three months, realizing it wasn't for me, wasn't sure what I wanted to study uh, or what I wanted to do in general. Um, and then I went into management consulting just to go check things out, try a lot of stuff. That's how I ended up doing getting um, a real strong, stronger background, I guess, in analysis and financial numbers. After a while, again, decided to see what else I felt like doing. Um, decided I wanted to go overseas, so I came to Cambridge to study. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I got two real experiences. Number one, I got really exposed to the startup scene in Cambridge, which is amazing. And even just the in the UK, that's completely different to what I experienced in South Africa, where it's a lot tougher to start a business, financing availabilities a lot lower. Mm-hmm. And there was just this buzz around the startups. And obviously in, in Cambridge, a lot of biotech, and then and fascinating to see what was going on. And I also met um, Tom Britton, who was the founder of Syndicate Room. Um, and we had a small project that we worked on on the side. We became good friends over the MBA. However, I went off back to South Africa to keep working on uh, or to fulfill my contract for the company that helped pay for my studies. Stayed in touch with Tom, um, and he took all the big risks, got to Syndicate Room basically off the ground and secured some <laughs> bigger funding. Um, and when it was a bit safer, I guess that's when he got in touch with me again and convinced me to come back over and work for the company. And originally as the CEO, um, because I had a fair experience working in operations and, and figuring out how to make things you know, run well, I hope, until around 2019, the board asked me to kind of step in and, and take over the CEO role as Syndicate Room became focused a lot more on running an EIS fund um, as opposed to or we used to have a kind of a mix of doing EIS funds and direct investments that we were facilitating for investors. So yeah, as I said, it's never really part of the plan <laughs> up, um, in investing. I mean, the reason I originally came over is just because I knew Tom, I really liked him. Cynic um, Room seemed like it was doing some really interesting things and seemed like a good problem to work on. And I, as I said, um, I've had the taste of that startup scene from being in Cambridge um, and it's like a really exciting place to be. So that's why I decided to join. Great. And you mentioned Syndicate Room's history there because it's a company that, although it hasn't been around a huge amount of time, has had a big change in what it does. So do you want to tell us a little bit about Syndicate Room? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess a bit touching on the history of this. Syndicate Room was originally founded with the idea of letting more people invest alongside angel investors. And the first way we facilitated that was simply, you know, having angels bring us deals and we would let people come to our website and choose which deals to invest into. 
So is it like a crowdfunding platform? Yeah, exactly. Just like the real, most of the crowdfunding platforms would just hopefully a bit of filter up front in that there was a respected angel going into it. But that uh, the way we identified that angel was more through our own network and, and, you know, if we'd heard that they were good in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did pretty well. And we were doing, basically came to around 2018, 2019. We'd had our own EIS fund that we'd launched in 2017 called Fund 28 a diversified fund that would basically, you know, copy what our investors were doing on the website and invest into 28 deals. And we basically, we learned a lot from those first two funds and that on the one hand, the investors liked them because it was much easier for a lot of them to get into startup investing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was diversified. There was no other diversified EIS fund on the market really than to work with. And they liked the idea of piggybacking on the work of these angel investors. Um, and then on the other hand, the companies were starting to actually prefer getting funding from the fund as opposed to the website model that we had because it was a lot faster and simpler for them to get funding from. Mm-hmm. And indeed, the UK startup market evolved so much and matured so much from 2012 and that when I first came to the UK in that you know companies had a lot more options to choose from funding, where to get funding from. Um, mm-hmm. And we found less and less of them actually wanted to go that route of crowdfunding. Um, unless they were going to get a big customer base. And I think that's really what Crowdcube and Cedars do well, is they offer a big marketing campaign with it. So we decided in 2019 to switch and just focus on just doing a fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's our, our main focus now. We're just an EIS fund manager. We're quite different in that we use a lot of data in how we built the fund and indeed how we choose which angels to partner with now. So we're still investing alongside angel investors. We're still letting investors, you know, get access to the angel stage of the market, and we still use diversification as part of our strategy. Um, like I said, we've just we've now underpinned it with a lot more data analysis that that supports that whole model. So yeah, uh, who is sitting good room today? It's just a we're a venture capital firm investing in startups by finding them through you know very successful angel investors and using diversification mm. to hopefully create more consistent. Um, and higher returns. Yeah, yeah. And we did have your your colleague Tom Britton on a little while ago, okay. um, speaking about sort of diversification and specifically. But mm. and I, as someone who's got a numerical background, I love the sort of data driven approach that you have because it, it, it's, it's something that I really appreciate. But today, what the reason, the main reason for asking you on is that you're in another white paper, and I, I must say I like the syndicate of white papers. I think I think they're doing better than sort of most people in the industry on that. And this was called the science of startup investing with the subtitle "Putting the power law to work." And hearing the, new, the word power law got me very excited, partly because I've just finished Sebastian Malaby's fantastic book of the same title. But it's something that's really important yeah. venture capital and I don't think it's well understood. So do you want to tell us why you wrote the white paper and what inspired it? Yeah, so I think similar to what you said, when you work in venture capital, you hear a lot of people talk about the power law and mm-hmm. how important it is and that um, you know all your returns come from just a few investments. But a lot of it is just you know that high-level talk um, and very few people... When you dig into it, actually understand, I guess the the, the math behind it, but um, but also whether it's true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, that's really the thing that I wanted to go and see, and you know, I googled at first to see, you know, who else has done 
similar analysis to look at it. Um, and there have been some instances. But whenever anyone has done an analysis on looking at whether the power law fits the data, they rely on either reported figures by VCs um, or they're looking at some other kind of restricted data set. Um, whereas in the UK, we're lucky in that we have company's house where every single startup has to file and say when they've raised capital and what share price and such. And I realized we actually had an opportunity to do a bit more of an empirical uh, mm -hmm. power, law, power law analysis and see whether the data does fit, I guess, the mathematical model of the power law. So that was the initial thinking behind it, yeah. Okay. So the risk is not, so, so to help us avoid skipping over the topic of the power law, do you want to say how, what the power law is um, oh, without yeah. any formulae? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'll do, do my best. And I, I will always say that the white paper, I did try to make it also. Mm -hmm. Very, very much as many layman terms as I could. Yes. Um, well, yeah, I think you succeeded. I found it very readable. Okay, no, that's good. Not to try. But yes, yeah, so the power law is simply um, a way of describing the distribution of a population mm -hmm. of values. So all of us are very familiar with normal distribution, bulk curve, and everything being mm -hmm. very concentrated right in the middle. The power law is very different in that everything is concentrated normally on the highest values or follow a curve. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to explain this a bit here. The majority of your values basically sit on one end of the spectrum. Um, so if you're looking at, at a typical graph, you'll see the typical explanation is around Pareto and 80-20, right? So 80% yeah. of the values will sit on one end and they'll probably be very small values. Mm -hmm. You'll get the twenty the other twenty percent spread along the other end of the graph, but those typically are very high values. So you kind of get this asymptotic um, graph of high concentration, eighty percent of your values on one end and twenty percent on the other end. But those are your very big values. Um, and the examples, it, I find it much easier to understand when you go through some of the examples mm -hmm. um, and the distant distribution. And the one that I use in the white paper because I think everyone's familiar with is wealth. You all yeah. know that, you know, 80% of people um, earn less than, say, 100,000, mm -hmm. um, and they find themselves all stuck on one end of this graph. And then you have the 20% of the population um, spread out, earning more than 100,000, and then you get people like Elon Musk, which is the 0.1%, which are on the very end of that tail of the graph, where a lot of wealth is concentrated, despite the fact that it's still only a tiny point of the, of the population. So it's really that long tail, the concentration that you get on one end um, with the long tail on the other end is what defines the power law. Yeah, and, and, and one of the important features, of course, is that has consequences for the averages. So that I, you give the example, I think, if, if there's a room of people and you're sort of saying, what's the average salary, then if it's sort of normal people in the UK, then it'll be X. Whereas if Elon Musk was in a room, the average shoots up um, dramatically. Yes, and again, that's very different from what we would normally see with height. So the, the, the example that I give in the white paper is if you have a normal distribution of height, a normal group of people of average height in a room, you could get an NBA player to walk in and the average still isn't going to actually change that much. So with the power law, if you have a room of people with average income and then yes, you get Elon Musk to step in, the average just skyrockets. Mm -hmm. Really the power that is how impactful the power law is because mm -hmm. 
those outliers can really skew any sampling enough that you do. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, I, I think most people in venture capital are familiar with this to some extent in that we know that the bulk of returns come from a small number of winners and the chances of failure really quite high. So kind of we know this intuitively already. So so hopefully this is fertile ground for everybody or every, everybody's understanding sort of kind of there. Yes. So you mentioned data. Do you want to, without getting into too many details, do you want to say briefly what the data was that you looked at? And because and, and you, you did apply some selection criteria, which I think are important. So I think, I think it's probably worth outlining sort of the, roughly what those were. Yeah, so the data, as I said, that it's important, obviously, to also look at the source of the data. Um, as I mentioned, the source of the data is Companies House in the UK. And in the UK, all of the startups, um, I guess all the private companies have to file there whenever they complete uh, a share issue um, mm-hmm. and equity case. The data that you can get from there is the total number of shares issued, um, the number of shares they already have an issue, and the share price. Mm-hmm. Is all the all you really need to determine uh, valuation of the company. Or you can also just stick to the share price itself and see how the share price changes, which you know is what you would typically do for uh, public markets mm-hmm. and such. So you can track the changes in share value, which then obviously give you an idea of returns. Um, but in this case, I'm mostly stuck to the multiples. Because when we invest in a startup um, at you know, a certain share price at, let's say, £20 um, a share, what we care about is when its new share price is going to be £60. Not so much. A lot of the time, you see people talking a lot more about the total pre-money valuation of, you know, it's £100 mm-hmm. million. And then later on, it becomes $500 million. But your own shareholding of that can change depending on dilution and everything like that. So for this analysis, we stuck more to the actual share price than the valuations itself. The group of investments that we looked at was from 2011 to 2014. So this was every startup that raised from 2011 to 2014. And this is them doing any type of fundraise, um, if it's their seed, Series A, Series B. Mm-hmm. And we basically took that as a trigger to start tracking them. And we basically tracked how the valuation changed from that point up into this 2021. So for some of those investors, some of those investments, we have, you know, 10 years of how much it changed for some of them. The minimum we'd have would be seven years yeah. of how much their valuation has changed. And then, yes, we could only, because of the power law, you can also only stick to startups that um, had a positive return, which is probably a very big um, asterisk to include as part of because most of the startups fail. They do get excluded from this. Um, we have done a separate analysis that looks at that includes them and looks at the overall growth of the of the market. Um, but in terms of actually doing a power law fit, you can't work with anything that is less than one. So, so presumably, this for this that means that you can talk about the effects of the power law, but you can't use it to give absolute sort of saying this is how we estimate returns because you're you're missing a chunk of the portfolio. Yeah, yeah, you can't say this is going to be the average. Well, first of all, we spoke about the averages, but you can't say that whole population average is not representative of the entire population. Yeah, so I think it came down to around 1,800 companies um, is where you end up with. And the other caveat we had was also just making sure that they raised at least £100,000 because you can get a lot of very small rounds 
Otherwise, you'd include, I don't know, something that they took just like a £10,000 investment. Mm -hmm. Were these criteria kind of developed after sort of looking at the data or are these things where you came in straight away and said, okay, we need these filters? And, and it, if, if, if they weren't there initially, how did, did they have a big effect on the results? Um, we mostly just sat down and I didn't run it on a whole lot of different ones is the short answer. Um, we sat down and thought, based on our own knowledge of how these startups raise, mm -hmm. um, what criteria do we think would make yeah. sense um, to capture the typical fundraise that we know happens, um, which is why I say sometimes you'll get startups that might take you know, a small check here from a friend or something. That's not really the kind of fundraisers we're interested in. We want to know the ones that are more accessible to everyone. Uh, and, and around climbing so yeah that those criteria we based on our knowledge and as you mentioned so it's kind the, of an investable universe almost yeah yeah that's kind of what we look at um we run a lot of different parameters on that so in our own structure of our own fund when we were deciding the minimum round size that would we we would invest into mm -hmm. in that case we did cut and look at the data and we looked at the returns of every single different funding round size to decide which ones we would use as a standard what the top of our to target for the purposes of this yeah we were just looking for the investable universe and can we, shall, shall we jump to what the sort of the results of the analysis were <laughs> yeah i mean in, in an abstract i think the probably the biggest thing to say is that the distribution of returns is what we would say consistent with a power law distribution mm -hmm. so that um yes everyone's right everyone says it follows the power law and we just found that i guess statistically that it does um, we found that to be significant. We tried a few other um, distributions um, okay. just out of interest because there is like, basically there's a Python package that's amazing that you can download mm -hmm. and it does most of the analysis for you. And it'll compare it to other distributions like log normal um, and that. And I'm glad mm -hmm. to say that at least Power Law did come up as the as the best fit for the data too. Worth mentioning that it is also consistent with uh, a few of the other analysis that I mentioned before that people or other people have tried to do it. Yes, you did list some references which I need to go and look at, which had very fairly some results for this value alpha of one point eight, which you came out with, and I think it's important that that value has some certain connotations, which I think is where the discussion really gets interesting because, or the distribution then has properties. So, the first of these is on diversification. So, do you want to chat about what? what effect the results have on diversification or what, how you think you should look at diversification? Yeah, so as you mentioned, there's something called alpha, which is basically I guess, the simplest way to describe for most people understand is the slope of mm -hmm. the graph and how big the tail is of that graph, um, which tells you basically how many of those um, big Elon Musk <laughs> there are type startups. Um, in that tail and how many that you can target. Um, and whatever that alpha comes at, this defines a lot of um, what will happen if you choose more and more companies and um, what effect that has on your picking strategy. And simply what we find is if it's lower, and in this case, 1.8 is still relatively low um, mm -hmm. on our law examples and that we have, is that if you pick more companies, um, you're more likely to you know, the expected largest return will increase. Mm -hmm. And there is a graph in the white paper that maps it out and just shows that, you know, mm -hmm. once you go from 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 startups in your portfolio, 
Um, it's basically almost kind of like a straight line in terms of the largest expected return that you'll get just as to increase. Yeah, I, I think the way I sometimes describe it is that if you invested in your know, household, you know, in the US, it would be Google or Facebook or something like that. If you'd invested that as a seed investor, that would effectively dictate the return in your portfolio. And you can think of that, you know, there's different scale of things. So next scale down might be something, I don't know, like Slack. And and yeah. then you might get WhatsApp, with, you know. So, and, and there's probably 10 WhatsApps for every one Slack and 10 slacks for every Facebook or something. And basically, the more you invest, the more you chance of having this huge investment that uh, effectively dictates your portfolio return. Yeah, that's the, those big outside, it's those outliers, right? As I said, mm-hmm. that will completely make your portfolio. And it's especially so at the early stage. And when I say early stage for us, I don't know what VC market you say it's early stage, but the angel stage, where these startups have a lot of runway to go. Mm-hmm. So this is when you're investing in Google or what, where they're still in their very first investment stages and they're at like a 5 million to mm-hmm. 10 million valuation. Because, yeah, once they get to even just a 500 million valuation, you're looking at a 50x um, or 100x, and never mind when they go even beyond that, compared to the investors who are coming in when they're already valued at a 500 million or a billion, the runway of growth there is much shorter. But it's also that you've got a completely different distribution there and, and the risk is is a completely different profile mm-hmm. too. But that's why you say, yeah, if, but I quoted there, you know, these Googles are now only happening a small percentage of the time you want to make as many bets as you can to get them in your portfolio because they will make the portfolio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it seems to me sometimes I've come across what I call the lottery ticket mentality, which is people are making a small number of bets and they're hoping that one of these is going to be sort of Google and, and it's mm. like they want to win a lottery ticket rather than sort of your approach is very much increase the distribution and, and yes, you, you'll only have a small investment in the winner, but you'll still get the, that will boost the overall sort of return to something that's yeah. a bit better. Is that fair? No, no, that is right. Yeah. Um, it's very much, you won't, we don't have a lot of, we don't have a few big bets, I guess, is the thing. We just have a lot of small bets and ones that will come in. But I do think, we'll talk about maybe a bit later, but it's still very important how you get into those bets. Um, it's still very important because mm-hmm. a lot of this model and the math, the, the math that we're doing assumes perfect access. <laughs> Um, everything to the market, which is not the case. It's not a perfectly accessible market. It's not like public markets and mm-hmm. such. Yeah, in 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 some some ways, you could say you've almost created an index of this investable universe. But at the same time, you haven't managed to sort of you you still got to be able to actually invest in s- something like these. Um, one thing I want to pick up maybe before we move on to that yeah. is people's views of this because it seems to me this idea that the bigger your portfolio the bigger expect return is probably a radical idea or, or, or an alien concept to a lot of people and certainly the first time I came across it my my eyebrows sort of went ooh mm, not sure about that have you how do people take that message i find within the industry 
probably if you have people are less into it. I think it's hard for them to come around to the idea that they aren't able to pick the winners, I guess is the idea. You know, a lot of the VCs are built around the idea that if you're making 10 investments, it's because we've 10 investments that we really believe in and we've done our homework and we really think that they can work. And Well, presumably your your approach doesn't actually say you can't pick the winners. You can't, but it's harder to do, I'd say, you're doing a lot of investments because you have to work through a lot and you won't necessarily have as much time, yeah. let's say, to spend on each one. But you're right. It doesn't mean that you can't have a belief in each one of those mm. bigger investments, I agree. But I think a lot of them still are a lot more reticent. And it's scary in many ways because when it's scary, I guess, when you're building a larger portfolio because you're still, you are really hoping that you get one of those, enough of those bigger ones that come through. As opposed to, I guess, if you're making 10 investments, it's easier to believe that at least one of those will go through. Um, and if they do go through, at least I only need a 10x. Mm-hmm. You know, to kind of back the fund, yeah. As opposed, to more investments make the bigger ones, the bigger X's. I guess you have to hope to have in that portfolio. But as the data and the distribution was shown, is that they are there. Um, these investments are there, uh, so you can get them. But yes, broader than that, individual investors in the fund almost are much more accepting of it, um, if only because they've seen the diversification and the index model everywhere else. They've seen it in the public funds that they invest into. They've seen um, Vanguard and everything like that um, and how it works. So a lot of them are much more willing to buy into it and invest in their model as opposed to within the industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 I, I do wonder a little bit about, you You know, the, the, the cha- there's a psychological challenge in there. Like people don't like losses and... Mm. If you've got, say, a, your, your 10 company IS fund, then you might get three or four losses or five losses. That That's kind of what most people are expecting, hopefully. Yeah. Whereas you've got 50 companies, and if you, in same ratio, you can have a 20 or, you know, 15 or 20 or something of those failing. Um, and that's a lot of letters coming through saying, very sorry, all right, you can claim your t- loss relief, but that drip over time... It might must be psychological, and that's and, and we know all no, the failures come before the successes. No, 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 you're right. I think that's definitely true. Um, and I think you kind of see it at the public level with the future fund. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's you mentioned because the future fund's a really interesting big experiment, um, and we'll see whether the power law and that applies to it or anything else because it's gone and invested in hundreds of startups, um, but across mm-hmm. very different sizes. Yeah. Um, and all over one period. And they also have their own, obviously, selection criteria that could have molded which ones they're getting into, mm-hmm. uh, which is also very interesting. But I will say, at least from a public point of view, I think you'll see a constant stream of articles coming out saying they invested in this and it's failed. And they've invested in now 50 companies that have failed. Whereas mm-hmm. I think I don't know what number is if they've invested in 500, they're going to get you know hundreds of failures coming through. That's uh, going to be constant news stories about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember years ago, was it President Obama getting flack for a, was it a solar company or a wind company? Any, some renewable energy company that had been, had received government funding and had failed. And of course, people saying, jumping up and down, proving that governments can't select. But of course, this was one of dozens of investments, um, which was maybe slightly unfair. You mentioned about, 
different stages. Mm. So you get different results for sort of sort of series A, series B, series C investors, and from the sort of seed or angel. Do you want to say say what those differences were and what what, what implications that has for investors? Yeah, so we ran analysis at least briefly. I wanted to spend a bit more time on it, but if we looked at typical Series A's deals where the valuations are about above ten million mm-hmm. um, and such, and just ran the power law to see specifically what we would get on the alpha, um, the slope of the graph, and whether the power law would of course fit. And we still found that it it fit, um, although the alpha changed. So we said across the whole population, it's one point eight. Mm-hmm. And then across these the high valuations, it goes up to 2.7. Mm-hmm. If you go even later stage, it goes to 3.3. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that means is those, when it's 2.7, if I described it before that, when the alpha is low, as you said, 1.8, you kind of get this very nice, almost 90 degree, well, so let's say 45 degree graph of the more picks that you're doing, the higher, the biggest pick you'll get. Um, and then it starts to become it flattens a bit as you as the alpha increases so at the 2.7 the more investments you make you start to get lower um, improvements in your expected return mm-hmm. um, so diversity you get less bang for buck i guess from diversification um, is the one way to describe it and again it goes back to that point where i mentioned that at the later stage they have less runway for growth um, so you're less likely to be picking well there's, there's fewer i guess um Companies that can go from, let's say, the 1 million valuation at the early stage to a 10 million, 50 million, which gets you a 50x, mm-hmm. as opposed to if you're starting at a 10 million base, that runway for getting up to 10x is far that make at that point. Hence why making more gets you less there. And then also at a later stage, too. So at the later stage, I can't remember, I need to actually. Double check it, but um, the expected median will still increase, but not necessarily the average of the portfolio at that Series A, Series B stage. Okay, so so basically, the properties of these look more like the sort of normal distributions or, or log normals or whatever the quoted markets really sort of look like. Yes, it starts to get a bit more like that. Yeah, you would still get more consistent, I would say, returns. So you're more likely to get a con. To get you know whatever X percentage returns you're going for, if you continue with that diversified approach, but that's typical diversification is what you would expect. Mm-hmm. But your chances of getting a lot of those big winners start to decrease, and then so even more so at the later stage. At the even later stage, you're more you're better off just using normal distribution analysis um, than you are looking at the power law for how to pick your deals. Which again, even normal distribution would suggest that a bigger portfolio get you more likely to get the mean return, which in some cases is you know, what a lot of people do want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, well, if you're getting means of venture capital returns, I think that, you know, the evidence would suggest, you know, whether it's high teens, low 20s, mid 20s, and I've seen all these in different surveys, that's a return that's worth getting. And and some ways what this diversification shows, it's about getting that in a, in in, a, in an appropriate risk adjusted way, be, because mm. you could get that return from one investment, or you could get it from hundred investments, and you know the risk the risk of those is is, is very different. Yeah, which actually leads me on to a question which just occurred to me: If someone came to you and said, 
how big should my venture portfolio be? What would you say to them? You just make it as big as you can or, or what? At first of all, I'd ask what stage they're investing into, but I think if they're starting at the stage that we've been talking about, the angel stage, yeah, it's almost as big as you can make a, the, the theory behind it, at least. Mm-hmm. In, in theory, the bigger the portfolio, um, you'll, you should continue to see benefits because you'll eventually get those really huge returns, which will completely outsize the rest of the portfolio mm-hmm. by miles. Like we said, if you had just that one Google, and if you made a thousand investments, um, and one of them was Google. Um, at that stage, when they were still at you know five million valuation or something, you'll still do very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would still be as big as you can. But then, if you're doing later stage, then yeah, I'd probably want to run a few numbers um, mm-hmm. and suggest that there's a better fit for whatever risk they're willing to take. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It maybe depends on certainly. I, angels have asked me this question and been slightly pulled when I've suggested numbers. Oh, you you should probably get to 100 or something. They're like, ah, how do I do that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the most successful angels we work with have portfolios that are over 100. Mm-hmm. Wide. And I'm hoping we can, we've got a shorter version of white paper we'll be putting out, but we've got a few input from those angels to say how they figured <laughs> getting to that number. But mostly it's just been through experience and intuition rather than actually crunching any numbers. Yeah. So... One of the things that really interests me about is the sort of conditionality and in terms of what you're investing, because it seems to me, you know, there's this sort of almost joke in in, in the venture capital fund managers about, well, maybe not joke, joke, I'm being fair, but um, about sp- the approach of what they, what's called spray and pray, which is essentially just go out there, invest anything and rely on the power law. You don't explicitly say that, but and this has been by reputation tried and failed, and this, mm. in theory, and maybe this fund managers talk in the book a little bit, is why fund managers go for the you know here's a concentra- more concentrated portfolio where I know it and understand and can and can manage that risk. Are you saying the spray and pray is is a way to go, or do you think that it's more nuanced? I would say a spray and pray would work if it was an open market. For the same reason we could say if you were to work with public markets and you just did a spray and pray of the market, you would end up with kind of a vanguard fund that would do pretty well. But the problem is with this market is you can't go, there's a, you can't see every deal. Um, you can't access every deal. Um, they, these deals happen with a few smaller group of people. Um, even the best angels don't necessarily always see the best deals. Um, it mm-hmm. just happens to be who they're connected with um, and how they're seeing it. And that's why you can't necessarily spray and pray because as soon as you start saying that I'm willing to give a check to anyone who comes to my door, you created a selection bias. Mm-hmm. Um, you're yeah. starting to select for companies that don't have their routes closed or are connected to you in, in certain ways. So it's incredibly important that you still figure out how you're going to get the right deal flow and the right access to deal flow, um, which in, in our case, the way we've solved that is by part, by running the same analysis that we have and building the exact portfolios of these angel investors um, so that we know they have the right deal flow or they have access to these high potential startups and founders so that we can get into their rounds early, um, which is why I still think yeah, it's really important. And, and that is, for me at least, what a lot of venture capital boils down to. A lot of it is about how you solve the deal flow problem. 
Mm-hmm. Um, even for angel investors, I think a lot of their success comes down to how well they've built that deal flow machine. Mm-hmm. You could even argue that a lot of these angel investors aren't necessarily just great investors. They might, it's hard to say, because they could just be in the right circles where they are seeing a much higher quality of companies than, say, another mm-hmm. angel investors. Yeah. And is that it's a function of if you're in well, Cambridge Angels, say, um, Cambridge Angels gets a lot of approaches and. Um, and you see that. And even I think, and even if you've been a successful angel with a name, people are going to come to you too. Mm-hmm. Or if you've had a six, you've founded a successful company, and now they want to come to you because um, they want to on their their cap table. Um, they are automatically seeing much better companies than say just your, I don't know, everyday angel. <laughs> Presumably, they're seeing more rubbish as well. But you know, that, 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 that that's a that's a filtering issue. Yeah, I think well, a lot of them will probably only accept warm intros, and I think people will stop. They'll stop listening to the people who introdu- introduce rubbish to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think they do set up the right systems to make sure that they are only spending their time on stuff that they think is good. But yes, they won't, they won't necessarily invest in everything that comes their way. They still do have their mm-hmm. own selection yeah. that they yeah. go through. But I think getting in front of those the the best quality deals is a big factor, market and how you get into it. So. Yes, I agree. That's why I say a lot of the the VCs, for them, it's easiest to say I'll do 10 deals and spend a lot of time trying to find those mm-hmm. those right deals as opposed to trying to source and um, find and review 50 deals. But like I said, we kind of sidestep that by working with the angels who are doing a lot of the work for us <laughs> um, to their deal flow. It's interesting you, what you say about deal flow there, because this is one of the things I mentioned earlier, having just finished Sebastian Malusby's book on the history of venture capital. It, and, and primarily it's focused, as you can imagine, in Silicon Valley. I mean, it does mention California, you know, China and, and other places. But And one of the things that he theorizes quite strongly is that persistence and performance is because of that privileged deal flow. If you are Sequoia, you, you know, everybody wants Sequoia on their investee list, so Sequoia will automatically see all the best deals, so they have the better chance of persisting. And that's mm-hmm. so. This seems to be something that is very hard to prove. That you know, I mean, the academic work does suggest there is some persistent venture capital performance, but um, it does seem a very plausible theory. Um, in that you know, just Sequoia's effectively going to get first dibs, and if even if they put the same bid in, then as as another unknown unknown venture capitalist, they'll get it. I don't know if the same thing applies in, in the angel world, where if well-known angel sort of says, you know, one of the dragons says, "Well, I'll invest," and somebody and I came along and said, "Well, I'll invest," and they'll go the same thing and they'll say, "Well, I'd rather go with the dragon because they've got the reputation." Yeah, I don't think it's as strong. Mm-hmm. I would say definitely as that kind of as a sequoia effect, but it still makes a difference. Um, it's still, I, I think it would still be there, especially if you consider um, a, a startup who's trying to build their company and even just looking forward. They having an angel like that on board, not only kind of just the expertise and I guess connections that they can make, but also. When you go and do your next funding round, you can have them on as on their on your pitch deck as an existing investor or an advisor, and mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily Sequoia in, in the UK, but um, you know, Baldstones, all these other other bigger funds will then look to that um, mm-hmm. as validation for their later investment, and just helps them build on it even further. 
So I agree. I don't think it's necessarily as big as something like the Sequoia, but I think, and let's take an example of Jonathan Milner when, when he wants, he probably sees most of the bi- good biotech deals that are going on in Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure every single promising one is said you should, if you're looking good in that, they'll want to get Jonathan Milner on board because it is a stamp of, he knows what he's doing. He invested in, mm-hmm. you know, expanded successful biotech, and now we'll also have him on board. It's a tough one to to prove. <laughs> I don't know how to run the numbers yes. on it. Um, the other question I want to ask you, which is not covered in the white paper, but I, I know you've looked at this elsewhere, is in terms of investing in a portfolio. And you have this index, if you like, of 1,800 companies or, or wherever, wherever it is. Now, we're not saying you, you nobody can access or anything close to that, or have the capital to invest in that. If you think in terms of sampling that to, to, to replicate that index, I mean, certainly I know this is something you get in quote markets where, you know, where you get a very large index, people don't necessarily replicate the whole index. They statistically model it and sample and say, okay, if I'm not, if it's a thousand companies and I invest in these 200, I will get the same performance to X percent or whatever. Mm. It's a lot harder to do in, in in the sort of private markets. But have you thought about this, modelled it, thought about, you know, because I'm particularly thinking about the, the, this thing about, you know, the small number of companies with big returns. No, I mean, that's a, a lot of what we try to design our own fund to do, mm-hmm. just being ability to sample that big of the market. Because, yeah, I think if you track this index we have of the whole market um, shows that it grows pretty consistently around 25% year on year. Mm-hmm. So that was actually, when we designed this fund, that was one of the first data points that we came across and we were like, well, how could we actually capture it? And that's when we modeled a bunch of different portfolio sizes um, to see what would give us the best shot at getting that on mm-hmm. a consistent basis. Um, and that's where we came to 50. We technically, I think, as I've said before, so doing more would get you closer to getting that index. Mm-hmm. But I think you do hit limitations on practicality of reviewing that many deals and getting into them properly and just executing it without having to have a massive team. So 50 is a number that we thought we could do quite successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been doing now for two years, three years, going on three years. Um, and then it was really a question of how do you sample it um, mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't create any selection bias, which is hence why we've ended up, why we ended up with the, the angel model. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, they're actually sampling it, and we work, we run all the numbers on these angels, and we know that they beat that market twenty five percent consistently, and therefore they should have access to the top end of the market. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, that fat tail of deals that I that we've talked about in terms of the power law. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's why we work with them. So in and probably I know it's a self promotion, but the idea is really that we did build the fund to try sample that index and hopefully sample the top end of that index. By working with these angels. Um, other than that, I think it's it's harder to build any other one, any other way to do it um, that wouldn't start affecting the actual distribution of deals in the market. Like I said in the white paper, you could you just gave say fifty thousand pounds to every single mm-hmm. company that on you know, company's house, you would just start completely skewing the whole market and the data. And um, mm-hmm. I think it would, it probably would. Is, is that because not every company could actually take fifty thousand pounds and deploy that yeah, effectively? Exactly. <laughs> No, I think technically it would also just affect the way that they 
that they perform uh, and what happens. But then, I mean, you probably couldn't even get every single one of them to take it. I think the, the top end ones probably wouldn't even accept it. You would just end up with all the startups that couldn't get any the money elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. So having produced another white paper, I I, I don't know if can we call this ne- the latest in a series? Are we are you kind of that stage here yet? <laughs> yeah, it's when I can, it's when I can put in the late nights of doing it. If we could. I'm hoping if we can get this, a lot of it unfortunately falls on me. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I, I still enjoy doing it. We're not necessarily a big firm. Um, we'd like to get our funds to be much bigger so that we could support a bigger team and therefore have actual full-time data scientists mm-hmm. that are looking at some of these topics on a more regular basis. Um, I would like us to look a bit, there's a, another topic that's always interesting in the venture world is follow-on investing mm-hmm. and whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. <laughs> mm-hmm. you should be doing it from a returns perspective. Um, but there's also some, there's also reasons why people do follow-ons that aren't necessarily always driven by returns. It's about supporting the startups and um, it helps you get into earlier rounds if you say you can do a follow-on mm-hmm. later on. Yeah. But still, I've not seen a convincing argument to say whether it's um, the best strategy or not. And I think a lot of angels have that question. We, have, we run an analysis on all the angels and we can actually tell them if they're good for picking the follow-ons or not. And there's a, probably a lot of VCs, I think, that also wonder about that. And I see a lot of different recommendations out there, but nothing that's really, as I said, built a strong argument founded in, in math to convince me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be very interesting to see because certainly I, I see several fund managers trying to build multiple pools of capital to support companies along different stages of the process. And, you know, one or two people have actually got that and, and, and several other companies have ambitions to do that to a greater or lesser extent. But I do question about, it seems to me easier to be objective on the entry decision than the follow-on decision. Now, I've had fund managers argue the opposite with me, so I'm not <laughs> saying that I'm right, but um, it, 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 it's not an easy decision. No, no, I think for sure. I think there is definitely biased decision making going on there. And I don't think any of the funds that I've spoken to have any kind of objective rules um, or way of approaching it, mm-hmm. deciding how much they'll make. I mean, even just now, um, you were hiring from, we're hearing from a lot of the venture firms that they're focusing their capital right now on their existing portfolio to make it through, you know, any recession and that that we mm-hmm. will be going into um, and cost of living and such. Um, without, I guess, actually thinking that's on the assumption that that's the best investment to be making as opposed to investing into a new deal that could do even better. Mm-hmm. But uh, they want to keep their existing portfolio afloat because I don't know, they believe it's the right investment or they want to make sure that their valuations, their portfolio valuation doesn't tank and therefore affect their ability to raise further. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's reputational damage as well, and that you know, if you want to be founder friendly, you want to be okay. If you're doing okay, we're there to support you because that, in theory, will attract other people to come to you. So there's all sorts of very good arguments, all of which just, to my mind, makes the decision even more complicated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why I think it's an interesting thing <laughs> to dig into. That's why, yeah, so we could find time to do. It. I mean, the first white paper we put out, 2019, 2020. So it has taken me a couple of years to get this one done. Um, and really, it's just a, it's not through lack of data or even um, topics to talk about. We just uh, need a bit more capacity to do it. 
Yeah, I, I, I can sympathise having produced a white paper a year ago and I do have ideas for a couple more myself and it's not... <laughs> trying to find the time is, 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 is not as easy as I would like. Uh, yeah. What I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. Now, I'm going to modify these a little bit because you have a slightly different process. So... What was the most recent public announcement investment you made? You can ask why you make it, but actually, in your case, I think that's going to be quite easy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, so the one I, was, I had to actually look it up because it's funny. I don't always, when we're doing five a month, check mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it. Um, one I thought I'd talk about is interesting, wild hydrogen, um, if only because this is a really long shot one. So we were talking a lot about moon shots, if you were. So they try to convert organic waste into clear hydrogen. Um, and capturing and store, storing carbon dioxide. So it's it's CO2 capture, which I think is obviously a hot area, but at the same time being able to make organic waste into hydrogen, which they hope they can sell into, you know, uh, as an energy source, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, and therefore capturing carbon and providing a new energy source that, you know, when you use hydrogen, it just makes water. Um, if they get it to work, um, it could obviously do very well. But one of those long shots where it might the technology might not prove or even the market might not be there. Yeah, definitely hero or zero. <laughs> yeah, and the reason we invested, yeah, it's one of the angels invested and they were normal criteria and they met all the other criteria and the math that we had behind it. So usually I ask people about the market, which is the most important in terms of market products and management. I don't know. It obviously doesn't affect your investment decisions, but do you have a view on which is the most important? Yeah, I mean, I'll say from my personal experience, because Senegalum itself is very much a startup in the way that we, mm-hmm. we have to run. We've had to build it from scratch, and that team is always the one that comes up as first. When you when you have the right people in place, it makes a huge difference mm-hmm. to how you're doing. You'll, you'll fix the product issues. You'll, fit, you'll fix the other fit issues, I think, that you have if you have the right team in place. And if you speak to a lot of the angels, that's what they'll say, too. So it's easy mm-hmm. for me to jump on board with that. <laughs> Okay. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Yeah, that one I mentioned is me and Tom. Oh, there was that project I said me and Tom first met and, and bonded over. We did it as a kind of side project during MBA. We launched a tea delivery business. Um, we ran a Kickstarter. We raised mm-hmm. money for it. We actually we secured that. We launched the business. And basically what it would do was deliver high-end tea through your first box. And it was fun. Um, and mm-hmm. I learned... A lot about what it takes to get a startup up and running. Um, I learned about what funding options are available, but I also learned a bit more about them being fully committed to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a side project for both of us. And we eventually got too caught up with everything else, and our hearts weren't really in it. We we did it very much as a side project to set up, but uh, we kind of just let it fail and die mm-hmm. <laughs> in many ways. So yeah. I, yeah, definitely being fully committed to it. But then, as I said, everything around getting a startup up and running and, and learning more. We, was, we got to speak to a lot of angels and, and learn a bit more about the, the market itself. So the EIS and VCT industry that work in is fantastic in many ways, but it's not perfect. What would you like to change about it? Yeah, my background from actual, a lot of operations work I did is I would love to change the way they process EIS applications. <laughs> so the HMRC. Um, Yes, HMRC. My, my grief is probably more with HMRC and how we can make the whole process a lot simpler. Mm-hmm. I think we're still using PDF forms and such for a lot of the work, even though a lot of it is online. I don't mm-hmm. understand why it can't just be moved to 
an online system and therefore and then you just get a, a reference code at the end of your investment which is what you do get mm-hmm. but then you can just that reference code could be everything that you need for making your claims and simplifying the whole process i would love to see them also improve the way that funds themselves can work with the is um, we make a lot of the investments in our case so we do 50 investments um, mm-hmm. and therefore we provide 50 reference numbers for our investors and we provide a spreadsheet download so we make it as simple for investors to claim as we can Mm -hmm. but it would be even easier if we could just get kind of one reference for the fund kind of like they used to do with eis5 funds but i think if they could make that more accessible now to the eis3 funds um i think you'd see a lot more investors come in because they wouldn't worry about all the headache around claim that to make Uh, and just simplify that process and simplify the actual tax claim um it would make sure a lot of investors who've come in and had maybe a tough experience with the tax claim come back and invest again. I've spoken to quite a few who've just said, although the the tax break itself is great, unless they have an accountant full time, they find it can be quite a lot of work to actually get the claim sorted out themselves, which is not the reason why you want people not using the the tax thing, right? Yeah, no, that, that, that sounds to me very much something that should be sorted out. Have you yeah, found it better with it now that we, we, we do have digital EIS-3s? So that is a step forward. That made a big difference, but I think it was weird that we went, they kept the digital, but all they did was make it in PDFs still. So it was physical, <laughs> it was basically digitizing a physical process as opposed to rethinking what the process could be. We also have limited resources. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and HMRC seems to me as an, as an organization, something that's more likely to brace incrementalism rather than radical change. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, I still think it's a great scheme and I'm very happy. So it's more. Yeah. So as listeners know, I'm an avid reader and I've already referred to my latest book <laughs> twice today, which is unusual for me, but it's very fun. Any books out there you like and would recommend? Um, so I just think about this one before and then actually, I don't know, this is a bit of a left field one, but The Food Lab. Um, I don't know if you do any cooking. Uh, cooking is part of a hobby mm-hmm. for mine. And The I Food do. Lab I is... Like Really interesting if you are more of a scientific mindset. It's about a guy who takes Mm -hmm. um, a more scientific approach to cooking in terms of he looks at every single, you know, myth or recommendation that you were given on this is how you should cook pasta, for example, Mm -hmm. a large of water, boiling, royal, and he actually tests them and sees, is this how you should do it? Um, And is there any actual effect to a blind tasting um, on the the food Mm -hmm. as someone who used to you know, do a whole lot of experiments and obviously works with data. Um, I thought it was really fascinating. And it actually improves your cooking quite a lot too. So that's that's nice that's, to know. <laughs> is, it, is that any link to Heston Blumenthal at all? Because I know he, he had a reputation for being along those lines, but I don't know if he'd gone quite that's, that far. This one, yeah, he is. This one's very practical, I think. Okay. And it's not as um, high-end cooking. Mm-hmm. It's more of your everyday cooking uh kenji lopez is the guy's name he has one now that he's also released about cooking with the wok but uh, a lot on that too but it's i yeah i think it's a good read it's not necessarily your business read um, but if you like numbers and and experimentation it's good well i do so i shall definitely have to add that to my list what do you wish you knew when you started with syndicate room that you know now oh gosh uh, make change faster <laughs> <laughs> Like I think, uh, and it's it's. I guess it's one of those things that's easier to say sometimes on hindsight, but sometimes you realize down the line that you should have changed something much sooner once you realize there was a problem. 
in you know in startup land, especially and even a small company, you can make those changes. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to go through bureaucracy or anything like that. So if you realize something does need to work differently, you should go and do it. And in the large part, I think we do. We constantly change our processes and prove them when we see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes on the bigger changes, we'll we'll wait and you know sleep on it and and think things over a bit more. And I think we all know what needs to be done. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those inevitable psychological biases where. Mm-hmm. Even if you know what the decision is, you need to sleep on it to give yourself that comfort. That, yeah, you know, yeah. You, you, you particularly where you know that, that one-way door idea, where it's, it's something yeah. that you well, sometimes that I think, yeah, but we'll also get stuck into, and it's also me where we want to see if we can find some data to support it. And sometimes some of the things there just isn't the right. There's never going to be the perfect data <laughs> that you need. You kind of have to accept that. It's a search for data, then an excuse to procrastinate. <laughs> yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I can see how that could easily happen. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Sendikaroom, where should they go? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the website's always the best place. I think uh, Um all the information's there. So make sure you sign up to our newsletter because we'll put in, sometimes I write uh, pieces there, just talk, commenting about the market and things. I think this last one I spoke a bit more about actually Sequoia and the investment in FTX and how how that i guess played out um, mm-hmm. or why they might have made it in the first place so we do have a newsletter where we put a lot of information in there so i'd encourage people to find that sign up to the website and then you can sign up to the newsletter easily there um we don't we're not so big on social if you if you follow us on linkedin you'll find out mostly about our latest investments or articles that we put out linkedin will be the best one um we do put stuff on twitter but i think the kind of mad um, I don't even know how to describe what Twitter is at the moment. <laughs> it's just like the gossip town. I just, yeah, it's not. It's not what it used to be, or why I originally joined it. So um, we're we're there trying to talk about normal things like investments we've made, but I don't think it's for that anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's a whole different podcast episode. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, and you know, sort of about what happens when people make a lot of money on investments and then can. Be liberated, which is another topic that Sebastian Malley talks about. Now Malley talks about, but oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just going to keep talking about this book for the next two weeks as the best thing ever. Um, <laughs> but there you go. So thank you very much for coming on today, Graham. Really enjoyed chatting with you, and I, I, I feel like I've spoken with Tom so often, and, and I'm really glad I've actually <laughs> finally got to to meet you. So thank you. I, I really enjoyed that. Great, thanks, Brian. Yeah, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed it too. So we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at hardmanco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.